Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us, we'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget, or we finish the project at no extra cost. If you're thinking about a software project, give us a call. We can talk about turning this from dream to reality. Today, we have Michael Epstein of Postpilot. Michael is the CMO of the SaaS that helps its clients with powerful postcard automation, mostly built for e-commerce and other SaaS clients. Today, Michael will tell us how he became involved with Postpilot, how the MVP was built, how they gained their first few customers to find product product market fit and navigate their zero to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. How are you today, Michael? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. So why don't you give me specifics on what Postpilot does and what specific problem you solve for your customers. Sure. So we believe that in a world of digital overload where your e- email engagement is declining and that CPCs are increasing, customers just crave tangible and real interactions with your brand. And we help customers do that through automated direct mail campaigns where we make sending individually personalized postcards and handwritten cards as easy as sending an email campaign. And it generates remarkable engagement, but it also generates remarkable ROI. Great. Okay. It's totally familiar with this concept. We had the Postlytics guy on. I can't remember his name, but um, sounds like he's in the same space. You guys, um, I'm sure there's uh, plenty of room for both for both of you. So familiar with this concept, obviously, um, as marketers, uh, you know, a big believer in sort of Dan Kennedy's, uh, all that sort of, you know, the direct mail, bulk, bulk mail, bulky mail, or whatever it is, lumpy mail, or whatever his, his thing is. But tell me how you got into this. Um, walk, let's take maybe a back step and sort of Tell me how you first got involved in it. What sort of time frame were we talking about when you first got into it? Sure. So maybe I'll kind of start with the genesis of this. And sure. I've been in e-commerce for over 20 years. I started a company, an e-commerce company back in 2000, grew it to tens of millions in sales, exited that in 2013 to private equity, and then became a private equity operator where was working with a number of eight and nine figure portfolio companies to help grow their e-commerce presence. Mm -hmm. And kind of one common theme was we did use direct mail successfully in a lot of, as a marketing strategy in a lot of these retailers, but it was just a clunky, difficult experience. You had, you were dealing with exporting spreadsheets and finding a print house and then sending a giant batch of postcards to a bunch of people and then trying to figure out with more spreadsheets later, like how was the ROI on that campaign and who responded and who didn't. And so myself and my business partner who was um, 
worked together for a number of years at, in these private equity operating roles, had the same experience. And we said, there's got to, it was one of those, there's got to be a better way. Like, yeah. how do we make sending direct mail campaigns as easy and trackable as sending uh, an email campaign? So can I and just interject, so, were you doing this? So you, you're sort of, at, at this point, you're sort of like an investor and you're looking and helping your, some of your, your investments, like your, I guess so they're almost like clients. Is, is this what you're doing or what, how were you involved with, you know, involved with this action at the time? Sure. So yeah, we were either advising or operating these large e-commerce companies okay, that were private equity owned okay. and helping execute marketing strategy and tactics there. And direct mail was one of them. Okay. These are guys that are, are doing Amazon and outside of Amazon, or are they primarily like mostly outside of Amazon? Because imagine there's some difficulty in sending um, bulk, you know, like snail mail to, or maybe there's not, I don't know, inside of Amazon, because you know the client name and you've got the address and stuff. So you could do it inside of Amazon, right? Yeah, there are some customers that are looking to um, get, you know, once they get the customer information from Amazon and bring them in through uh, methods that are that are consistent with the Amazon terms and conditions, you can then retard. You can then start engaging with them uh, and getting them to come to you direct. But most of the companies we work with, we're focused on the direct to consumer. Okay, perfect. Okay, okay, great. So, um, all right, great. So you're you're sort of getting involved in this. You know, there's got to be a better way. Did you find a better way or what was what was um, how did you get involved with Postpilot? Sure. So our third co-founder, we came, we found who was working on addressing this problem. He had experience in the in the print house business. His family had a, a print house and he, he had the same kind of thought, like, how do we make this easy and how do we make it work in the age of digital? And so he had started building this MVP product and we found him and uh, invested in him and came on as partners and co-founders. And that's when we really started launching the pro we built the product, got it launched and started growing it and growing it pretty rapidly. So he had the he had basically all the equipment that, that you needed to do the, the printing, though. He was sort of working with his family. So he had that sort of. Uh, as you say, a print house, he had all the machines that, that could do this easily. Is that, is that correct? And he was just like, I've got clients, they want to do this, but it's, I'm messing around with like, you know, manual ways to take their orders. I want to build some kind of a, a software so that it streamlines that. Then they send their business to, to him. Um, and then you guys, I presume it sounds like maybe what he was good at was the print side and maybe not so much on the software side and you guys came in on the software side is that correct it's actually a little a little bit different he actually is a software guy oh he, really okay interesting a, yeah he built he's a very talented developer okay and um, he had experience and background through his family in direct mail in the print business okay so he so wasn't he was in that was, shop okay no, no, he was okay. actually building that layer on top of it. And then we started by working with a network of print shops where we built the software layer and the interface that allowed all this to happen. The segmentation, the easy drag and drop design, the, the tracking capabilities, the native integrations with your Shopify store and other e-commerce platforms. We were building that software layer and then had a network of printers. And now we not only work with a network of print houses, but we have our own facility in South Carolina. Okay, great. So, what was the what was the space like at that time? Um, 
I can't remember when postlytics came about, but he was essentially describing the same scenario where he was frustrated and couldn't find it. So there was no software at all. There was nothing. This he was the only guy that you, or was there somebody else out there that you were that that just wasn't doing it very well? No, I mean there were yeah there were a couple of companies. I don't know exactly when they started, um, but there were a couple of companies starting to think about this problem, and it was. You know, at the time that, uh, again, it was just getting harder to acquire and retain customers and more expensive to do that purely online. And, and it was like catalogs and direct mail had always been effective and direct to consumer brands were still using it very effectively, uh, but it was just complicated. And I think what we really strove to address, and I think we address uniquely in the market is our ability to do really granular segmentation and individual personalization and tracking like the true things that allow you to see which cohorts of customers are responding best measure exactly how well they're performing and then fine-tune your campaigns just like you would with an e with an email campaign and segmentation or like you would with uh facebook or other digital ads and target audience targeting it's it's not effective if you just send a giant batch to a whole wide, a broad group of right, people. Of course. And so you want to one, yeah, drill in, yeah. get the people that bought, you know, what such and such a skew, you're really speaking to them. If it's a female and they bought makeup, you, you're selling them similar um, products and that sort of thing. Um, so, exactly. um, so, 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 um, Describe to me what the the first MVP was doing. Like when you came to your co-founder. Sorry, what's his name? Matt. Matt. Okay, you came to Matt. He's a good. He's a really good developer. What was what was the software doing at that time? Um, and did he have customers? Just probably just getting going, or where was he at in the you know sort of uh, in the process? Yeah. So he was just kind of starting to roll out an MVP, like. A couple people testing it out and it was just kind of a more rudimentary interface it did kind of the some of the core functionality of being able to um, design a postcard online and target a specific segment of an audience and send that to a print house to get that printed so it was really just starting at the MVP kind of that so he had been, how did you find him? He must have had a website. Is that what it was? Or? Yeah. Um, I actually am trying to remember now exactly how we came across him. I know it was, we were doing research online. We were looking at who was in the space and found just a project. I think that he was, was working on It started posting about it and just kind of, but he wasn't a marketer. Like he, you know, he, he knows that and he likes to build, he's a great product guy, yeah. a great developer, but didn't really needed help just understanding how do I bring this thing to market? How do I get this product to, you know, a, a little, a little better MVP that we felt comfortable bringing to market and started addressing the core challenges that we thought existed. Uh, and then how do we get people to, to notice it and, and okay. know it exists? Uh, okay. So that makes sense. With, what does your other co-founder do? Because it sounds like there's three co-founders. The one, your other one that was in the in the um, investment side. What what is what's yeah. his background? Like, I mean, is you're the CMO? This sounds like he's just, the other Matt is a CTO. Is he sort of operations or what's his background? Yeah, he's also like on strategy and marketing. We have a very similar background, okay. and 
he came on, uh, you know, we came on together and he also kind of helps envision the, the roadmap of the product, helps on the marketing and business development side. Uh, again, he, he has a similar background, has been in e-commerce for as long as I have and done similar things. We worked on these private equity portfolio companies together and had a lot of kind of connections in e-commerce. So we really knew the space really well and, and we, you know, that's what helped inform our roadmap and that's what helped us start evolving the product and get, uh, get some of those initial customers as well. Great. And talk to me about how you convinced Matt to sort of come on as a founder. Like what was that conversation like and, and how did you, how did you end up splitting up the equity of the company and things like that? Sure. So, um, you know, Matt would be the first one to admit that the business and marketing side wasn't his forte. And that's he was he was worried, I think, that he was going to build a product that he knew was a good product and he could do that. But it was going to die on the vine because he he just didn't have a way to didn't know how how to get it out, didn't have a way to generate revenue, which ultimately, you know, you got to start paying the bills at some point. And so. Um, you know, he was eager and looking, I think, for partners uh, to come on and get this thing ready to launch and actually go out and do something with it that we all knew had a ton of potential. Um, so that was fair enough. So he was so essentially when you approached him, was he like who brought it up? Says I'm looking for partner. Or were you guys like we're looking to invest in the company? It's like, hey, that's great. Um, it it sounds like a very serendipitous sort of um exchange in the beginning is that was it or was it was it more sort of like testing the waters who is this guy you know because sometimes you you don't want to jump into too soon can you kind of walk me through that whole sort of how you positioned yourselves and how that you know how long did that take for you to actually you know when that first greeting to you actually taking on equity was there an investment period all that sort of stuff Sure. Um, I think serendipitous is a good word for it. It was, uh, it came at the right time. It was a point where I think Matt was uh, at a point of reflection and saying, how, how, how far can I really take this thing on my own? Uh-huh. And how long is that going to take? And can I ever get it there? And can I ever get enough for it to actually start generating income and make it worth my time? And so you know, he was very, he was receptive off the bat. I think it helps that Drew and I, my other, my partner and co-founder, um, had a track record, genuine credibility and a track record yeah. in the space yeah. and could really articulate also the vision for the product. I think we all immediately recognized that we shared a vision for what the need that, that existed in the market and where we could take this product. And he knew that we were coming not just with capital because that's you know anybody can can potentially just throw dollars at it but we brought uh the marketing sophistication business development strategy track record and connections and that and that was going to help get the product actually get get some initial traction okay, going. of course so you're coming with some investment you're coming with the money bags too then is that right Okay. Yes. So, so, um, and how did that work out? What was the, um, how, what was the equity split and, and, and how did that work for like, what was Matt? I presume Matt had a hundred percent equity in the beginning. How, what's the structure now and how did it form? Yeah. So we're not exactly evenly split. Um, but Matt still retained a significant portion of the equity 
and then myself and Kofa and and Drew uh, split the remaining portion. Uh, and um, we have you know a portion set aside. We've hired a CEO as well, and we've hired a number of other people. So we have uh, a pool that's also been set aside for um, potential hires and existing uh, management. And uh, we actually also made another recent acquisition, and so we're th- that's in the process of being merged as well. Okay. Just out of curiosity, what do you recommend setting aside for employees? Do you like sort of earmark a, a little share for the future hires, as you say, like the CEO that you don't know who it could be? How does that work? Sure. So in our private equity experience, typically you'll set aside about 15% in a pool. Okay. And that is available to essentially allocate as needed to uh, to senior leadership and for you know high value um, recruiting. And so... That doesn't mean that you'll necessarily use all 15%, and what you don't rolls back into the the general uh, equity, the general cap table, and is split among the existing uh, shareholders. But we kind of, you know, have have in the back of our mind that we'll have 15% set aside as available for discretionary use as we continue to build out the team. And so you set that up right in the beginning. Right in the beginning is it's okay. Here's the equity. Here's the cap table. Say Matt's going to get fifty percent, and and you and Drew are getting say twenty, and then you or whatever it works out, and then you've got fifteen sort of set. Did you set that up right in the beginning? Um, we didn't have to set it up initially. We kind of split the equity among the three of us first, but then had that's that conversation. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then no, Drew, no. Uh, sorry, Matt was it was willing to give up some of his as well to get to, in order to sort of split three ways so that you could that you could make that 15 percent yeah yeah understanding that to grow this company there will be periods where we may have to accept some level of dilution to create a much bigger pie for everybody okay great and if you uh, let's go back to the let's go back to the uh the mvp story i think that's that that's more appropriate um so so Tell me about the first three customers. He it sounds like he had a few customers. What did you need to do to kind of get it really ready? Um, like, how much investment did you guys have to put in um, to get it to like MVP ready? Was it MVP ready? Um, it was pretty close to MVP ready at that point, but it was uh, it needed a new brand. It was um, called something else at the time that. We didn't really like the name was of it. Was it Mail and... Snail? Was that it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wasn't, didn't really convey, I think, the message that yeah. we wanted. Uh, yeah. And so, as, you know, it was, it was making some of those fundamental changes to not just the product and getting that kind of at a point where it was stable and the core features existed from segmentation to design to tracking and integration uh that it didn't take that long from the time that we made the initial investment to getting it kind of real mvp ready on the shopify app store starting to generate you know a little bit of interest and then it was uh then it was a bit of hustling to to start getting those initial customers in the door so so that was that your guys ideas like we need to get this into shopify that's our that's our sort of um that's our market in, in the People will find us there. We don't have to go out and, and so you you did Matt not have a, a Shopify integration? 
he was starting that process. You have to go through, there's a process okay. of getting it approved and certain ways of, of billing and things like that that um, had to uh, get approved and updated on the app store so that it would be, be available. And yeah, I mean, of course you get some customers that come in through the app store and we get still a healthy number of customers coming in through the app store. But I think especially at that time, several years ago, you know, how many people are seeking that out? Um, and so it was also uh, a bit of an, a bit of education and marketing that we, we needed to help generate more awareness of the product and help people recognize um, that, yeah, this is a problem that a lot of folks knew they had and a, and a channel that they knew they wanted to explore, but didn't, didn't always know that the product existed. So talk to me about that, that education then. When you rolled it out, was all of your, um, would you say like 80% of your new users were coming from Shopify or was some of it coming from like organic or where was it, what were the main channels in the beginning? At the, at the very beginning, it was pretty much all Shopify and then podcasts and through our network. Uh, again, okay. just having been in e-commerce for so long, it was appearing on podcasts with a lot of uh, people that we knew and and also just getting some referrals from them as well. Okay, so so out of curiosity, how many podcasts were you doing back then? Gosh, um, you know, probably a couple dozen. Really, a couple dozen a year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so one every two weeks or something. Um, um, so when you got into Shopify. You said that there was sort of an education component that would come to it. Was, was that because people d weren't searching for it and you had to sort of explain it? Or, or was, what was the positioning like at that time? Sure. It was, yeah, I mean, it, there are some customers that are looking for postcard marketing specifically on the Shopify app store. But in, you know, that that's not the largest audience. They know the problem they're kind of problem aware, but not product aware. Yeah. So they're they're they don't necessarily know that something exists, and so it's it's again helping get the the word out that yeah there is something that actually uh, helps you send these types of email campaigns in a way that's effective and trackable uh, and easy and um, and that 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 really did click. I mean, anytime we kind of got either onto podcasts or. You know, we're we're talking about it to uh, relevant industry folks. I mean, it, it clicks for people, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, not everyone's uh, was initially you know actively seeking out the that particular product. As a marketer, can you walk me through how you would solve this problem? Like, let's say you're back in this time. It's like, okay, we're up on Shopify, and nobody really knows that they have this problem. How would you as a marketer go to solve, like go about solving that problem of educating them? Can you kind of walk me through the, your sort of thinking back then? Can you remember how you did this? Or can you sort of um, think, you know, kind of explain to me like how you would as a marketer go through and solve this problem? Sure, so I think that the messaging that we use speaks to the problems that people have versus trying to sell them postcard marketing. That's not, that's not what we do. We help bring customers back over and over again. We help you reach the 80% of your customers that are not opening your emails or even on your email list. Uh, so it's, 
it, it's solving that problem. And today it's it's even more pronounced with like the iOS updates making it. Yeah, even I was more just thinking about that, how this could be quite valuable and well positioned for that because people are yes. losing data from from all of that. But when you say that's exactly. a bit generic, if so a messaging, you know, like tell me how you get the copy. Like, are you talking to people or are you, um, you know, like how are you getting that messaging correct? Yeah, I think it's it's trial and error. It's listening to the pain points of e-commerce customers in particular. Like, we how do you that. do that specifically? Are you reading emails? Are you going to review, you know, like going to reading people's reviews? I mean, how are you like getting that, that, um, the, the, taking the words out of your customer's mouth so that you're not putting, you know, sort of you using your own words and sort of, you know, taking stabs. Are you actually looking and using your customer words? And if you are, where are you getting the, that those words from sure i think one thing we're we're a little bit uniquely positioned in that myself and and drew have been in we are the target customer yeah that's, we've run that's a good eight point. And nine figure e-commerce stores and numerous eight and nine figure e-commerce stores over the years so not only do we know the pain points pretty intimately you know, we, we have conversations all the time with other eight and nine figure marketers and founders and, and CEOs and and we hear the same pain points from them as well. So it's 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 hearing those conversations. Aside, of course, we're also looking at, you know, emails, we're reading our customer, um, uh, we're reading customer feedback, we're reading the questions. I think that you know, the questions that people ask, the ones that are inquiring to your business is just a goldmine of, for copy and messaging ideas. Yeah. Like what brought them to you in the first place? What was going on in their life that drove them to seek out, you know, and get interested in your product in the first place? And you just amplify that, that messaging um, uh, back to, you know, new prospects. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you bring up because I think, a lot of, you know, sort of people when they get to executive level, they're like, I'm not going to read through people's emails. Are you asking, like, are you finding someone that's in support to say, hey, when you, somebody's complaining? Or are you actually going through the emails and reading it yourself? Because there's a big difference, obviously, when you get, uh, you know, like a support person to do it or a marketer to get go through. So is that such an important and valuable activity that you're actually doing that yourself? I'm doing it myself uh, and I'm getting feedback from from the other team, too, if they see a commonality. But I'm in there that that's one of the most important things, I think, that even people at the most senior level can do. And just to give you like a, a, a separate example, uh, you know, I ran a I was CMO of a nine figure online retailer of aftermarket automotive products. The first thing I did for the first two weeks when I came in that company was sit side by side with the customer support phone reps and chat reps and watch the customer interactions and and really internalize the problems that people were facing, the questions that they were asking, the way that we what we were doing to solve that for them. That was my number one thing. Yeah. And I take the same approach here. It is just the it's just such a goldmine of information. Uh, I think that's great, great advice. So thank you for bringing that up. So like actually going in the chat and, and listening to chat. I think I see like see this, um, maybe it's not Mark Benioff, but someone like one of the CEOs on, on sales, um, Salesforce is actually going into live chat and answering, you know, and, and listening to what people are writing on live chat and stuff. That's actually what you were doing as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I know a number, you know, the number of companies will have these uh, policies where they make senior management go and like sit, either sit in support or even perform support for like yeah. two weeks out of every year or something like that. And it's, it's super eye-opening. We, we encourage our, both of the companies that I've, I've run and managed as well as Postpilot, even having the IT folks sit in and the developers sit in and actually look over the shoulders of the support people. Because it's one thing to hear uh, from a customer support rep or a sales rep or a, a marketing person, yeah. everyone's asking for this, everyone's asking for this, can you build it? It's another thing to actually see firsthand yeah. like the pain that someone is going through to use the product or the need that they have that they're trying to address that maybe you haven't built yet. And, and that's really, it really kind of hammers home uh, some of the, uh, the the things that ultimately make it onto your product roadmap. Yeah. it's um, Was it all easy for you? You make it sound like it was easy. I mean, t was there was there any stumbling blocks that you hit in those in those early days for it to kind of take off? And if there were, can you tell me some? Give me some examples. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I certainly don't want to convey that this was all easy. I mean, we, we I think we uniquely address a problem and and we built a really good product that resonated pretty quickly with people. But it certainly wasn't easy, particularly because of the point we were talking about earlier, that not everyone, that many people aren't product aware. Uh, we thought, you know, again, while people kind of understand the problem in how to engage people uh, that are just being bombarded by digital ads, they postcard marketing isn't always the first thing that comes to mind for folks. So how do we make that connection to people? And then how do we make it so easy for them that it's a no brainer for them to try because it's a new channel for a lot of folks. Yeah. And so I think those were the two things that we had to solve, uh, getting people to become more aware of the product. And then when it came to getting them to actually take the step to try it, there were two kind of pivotal moments that we had, and that that didn't happen actually for for a couple of years. Uh, one was uh, implementing kind of a free trial and a concierge level service. So what was it before? What was it before? It was essentially. I mean, we were doing hands-on help if a customer needed it, but was we, there no free plan? Because my understanding is Shopify makes you have a free plan, don't they, to be listed in the mar marketplace? You can try. You can try it for free, and then you pay for the postcards as you actually okay, send them. Yeah. So you, there was always a free trial, but it was still a new channel for a lot of people. And so for us to make sure that we could walk walk them through the process as self serve and as and as effortlessly as we make the product uh, from a user experience perspective, it's still you know you still have to have a postcard design. Yeah. Uh, you still have to choose your segment, and then and then make the decision to send it. And I think what really was pivotal for us with our with our background and expertise and credibility in the e-commerce space, we could give very kind of clear, specific and valuable direction to our customers on what's gonna work for them. We could look at their business and know what was really gonna work. So they said, okay, if you can kind of help guide me on the segmentation that we should be using, if you could help guide me on the the designs that you know will be most effective uh, for our customers, then that makes me a lot more comfortable. So that concierge service of okay. just helping walk them through the whole process was a big part of it. And then I, the second part was on the design side. So 
even though people are creating emails, even though we have a drag and drop editor, we have a million templates that you can use that are, that are professionally designed and, and make it easy, everyone's got their plates full, right? So even from seven figure to nine figure businesses, uh, creating that design was just something that as easy as we make it, it's just a, it, it's one more kind of point of potential friction in the process. So we actually built a professional design team where we'll, t you just answer a couple questions about your brand and our professional designers will go and they'll show you a mock-up of a, 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 be a bespoke, custom, uh, really, So you guys really did it. So you sort of added a sort of service component to the SaaS. Exactly. And, and exactly. talk to me about charging then for that. Like, how did you work that out? What was charging before? And then what was what was charging once you figured out that that's this is what you needed to, to really have this be accepted in the onboarding process? Sure. So we have kind of three tiers right now. We have the free tier, which is just pay as you go. You, you pay for as many cards as you send. And that starts at 89 cents uh, or it's it's 89 cents a card. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, we have an, a $39 tier and a, a $399 tier. And on those tiers, do you still charge the $0.89? Cents? Then you get lower pricing per card. So, for example, on the $3.99 tier, you're paying just $0.49 cents per card. So if you're sending Three a thousand nine, Sorry, did you month, say it's, so it's 400 a month? Yeah. Okay. For, for, so for it goes from month, free to 400 And Sorry, what was the last one? There was one in between, oh, so okay. thirty nine and three ninety nine. Ah, uh, okay, so that's why it was thirty nine and then three ninety nine. I thought you said th three ninety nine. Okay, that that's quite a big difference. So I presume the 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 three ninety nine is just like enterprise full. You know, that's the one with the design teams and stuff like that. Actually, both of our plans come with the free design service and so and, and the concierge support. Uh, the other the the biggest difference. Um, between the 39 and 399 is also just the price of the card. So for customers sending a thousand cards or more a month, it pays for itself. And for most of our seven, eight, and nine figure stores, a thousand cards a month is very little. Yeah. So we have a lot of customers that are sending tens to hundreds of thousands of cards um, per month. Wow. That's so a, for that's them, crazy. it's really, yeah. really cost effective. Yeah. So, and what's, talk to me about the, um, like as, as, in the onboarding process, like what are some of the some of the figures that you can give to sort of help close the deal? Is it, what's the ROI on this? Sure. So our customers are are typically seeing from six x to twenty x ROI. Six uh, x is kind of the baseline for where you know if you if you have a if you have a if you fit the criteria for our customer, which is typically seven-figure annual business with something that isn't a pure one-and-done type product. You're, if, if you just have a product that customers are only going to buy one time or you don't have a, a variety of products that they would ever come back and buy from you again, sending them a postcard isn't going to force them yeah, to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you, have, uh, if you have a number of SKUs, if you have a consumable product, for example, supplements are one of our biggest yeah. Uh, biggest bait customer bases, uh, cosmetics and other food and health related products where these are products that people use over 30 to 60 days uh, and then they run out. And, and so, so it's like reminder cards or something like that. 
that's one of the most popular use cases for it okay. is uh, you could trigger it so that if someone doesn't buy within a certain amount of time, your expected time, then we automatically trigger a reminder to go out with an incentive to say, hey, get back on track. Come yeah. here. Uh, it's time to come back and, and, and buy again. And, and we see fantastic returns with that. Okay. And so when you made these, were these were these sort of two changes that you made? It sounds like it was just in the onboarding process. Is that correct? It's just really onboarding. We've always, sure. I mean, we've we've constantly evolved the UX and UI to okay. make it even more easy and frictionless. But but those were, I think, the two most pivotal changes that we made, particularly the onboarding process, to give people one a level of comfort that okay we can test into this channel and we'll see for ourselves that it performs and then we'll keep sending once we see the results yeah we we saw enough for success with so many customers that we were comfortable saying like we'll we'll send your first campaign for free because we know it'll work well for you yeah. and then we know you're going to keep wanting to send yeah and then the design process was the other biggest one where it was like okay i want to do this I'm just so busy. I just can't do. I, I just have no time to do anything. Okay, good. We'll we'll take care of it so, all for you. Just give us a thumbs up. It sounds to me like both of those problems were again solved because you were listening to the customer and you kept hearing the same. I'm just too busy. I can't. I can't handle this. And then you like you put your heads together as a team and you said, "How do we get solve this problem?" And this is how we can do it. Or or did it just evolve? I mean, how, how did it come about? No, you're exactly right. It was that we heard we heard from enough customers, and again, we're we're looking at the tickets, we're looking at the inquiries, and and we're seeing like the delay from saying I'm I'm I want to do this, I want to do this to, but I couldn't get my you know I couldn't get the design from my design team, or I didn't have time to go in and use the the drag and drop editor, and then you start picking up on those common kind of points of friction in the user experience, and then we just figure out how to solve it, whether it's uh, technically through the UX UI or whether it's through um, that sort of service component of the of the business. Yeah. So what was sort of revenues? Uh, walk me through revenues um, going from the Shopify store. You just get launched. Where was sort of where was the product market fit sort of? Was it at that time uh, when you sort of made this tweaks to the onboarding process? Is that when you really found, felt like you found product market fit? And was the, like, where were you at in revenues roughly? Were you at like, say 20,000 and then you made this tweak and it just like started going, you know, exponential, the hockey stick growth? So, yeah, we were a little bit higher than that when we first, we felt like we started to have product market fit as we really defined who our target customer was. Which is e-commerce. It's it's e-commerce. It's something with a but specifically a brand like, or a product right. okay. that lends itself to customers wanting to potentially buy it, buy something from them again. And it's and it's the seven figure plus businesses, like million dollar plus that like the one million dollar mark means I at least have enough customers that there's a there's a okay, big enough yeah. cohort that I can go after to, to that we know is gonna work. If okay. you've got 200 customers over the last year yeah, like yeah. that's going to be course. really tough to yeah and they're work. not going to really be buying um yeah okay that you're still sense. figuring it out at that point yeah so yeah. once we found that that was kind of where we felt like we started to have the product market fit but then it was the 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 concierge service and the trial that like 
poured gas on that fire. That was the that was the turning point to say, all right, now it's going to start doing that hockey stick growth because we've solved some of the biggest challenges in getting these bigger customers uh, onboarded and sending and then seeing the results and coming back. For other SaaS owners that are listening, um, it sounds like this is just really a, a problem that you guys experienced and you solved it. How would you go about saying that they could, you know, let's say they're just getting to that point. How would they go about finding where, what that what that gasoline is? Do you think uh, the best place for them to start doing that for their own business? Yeah, I think it's kind of what you what you referenced earlier. It's just being really attuned to listening to the customer and particularly your ideal customer. I think the one the one distinction I would make is if you listen to everybody, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, fair enough. You've got a million customer. You've got customers that are throwing a million different ideas at you. Oh, I just want this unique. I have this unique use case. Can you build this this feature for me like that? That is that is something you have to be really diligent about saying, you know, I know who our tar. If you feel comfortable with who your target customer is, you can't let the whole team get distracted by you know the one customer request that you don't see has a broader use case. If you're doing things that you think consistently add value for your ideal customer, you're not really going to go wrong there. Okay. If you're developing unique features that serve. A bunch of different things you're going to end up with a bloated confusing product that doesn't serve any one particular customer uh, or customer co- cohort okay. that well so as i understand it sounds like first they need to really drill in who is their exact avatar i mean as a copy sounds like as a marketer would you actually go and do that do the classic copywriter like write it's like who is my customer her name is ann and she lives in you know whatever michigan and would you, is that something that you that you do to to really dial in your your client avatar um we didn't do, I, I know a lot of companies that do that we didn't go we didn't actually put the picture of the person in the name and and where and all that but we we again we had a real sensibility around the e-commerce customer you knew that it was it like was, kind of seven figure and above e-commerce for these it had to be sort of recurring or some kind of a multiple skew that when you send out a card. So that's step one. Step two, yes. then get in there, get on the live chats, find out what what's happening. Why why aren't the sales guys closing? What's happening with the onboarding? You know, what's my free trial to convert, you know, to convert to the first tier? What's happening with that? To solve that problem, right. you're just like in the live chat. Yeah, we're we're in the chat. We're we're talking to customers on the phone. Yeah. We're reading the the emails that they send. We're reading the the feedback and reviews that they might be posting. Mm-hmm. We're looking at what get yeah, what are the key phrases that that got them to pull the trigger in the first place? What was it? Not just what are the problems that they have, but what what are the key things? What are the key valuable attributes uh, that they found of the product? Like the value props that got them, that made them happy with it. And let's continue to emphasize those those points. It was, it made it so easy. It was that I could actually track it. It was that it, I could actually segment it and see how these different segments were performing. So as we continue to see that all that feedback, you know where the where the friction points are and where what pain points we really solve for them we can refine our messaging and product to continue to emphasize those. Okay, great. That's been hugely valuable for myself and I'm sure for our listeners as well. I want to thank you for your time. We're getting close to the 
top of the hour. I want to make sure you get to your other calls and the rest of your day. So thank you so much, Michael, for your time. Um, what can you, what could you sort of, let's say one last question. What would you tell yourself now, uh, speaking from now to say um, yourself, like when you were first getting into this business, like what is one piece of advice you could give your, give your, your former self getting into this business? Uh, one piece of advice, I think we, we need to move fat. We, we could have moved, made some decisions faster, I think. And, um, particularly around some of those key, key points, I think we had indications of where some of the friction was. We just had to pull the trigger and say, we're going to commit to, we're going to commit to this and, uh, and start offering these, um, that type of enhanced level of service and, and resource it appropriately and just fully commit to, to some of these things faster. So it sounds like really that, that those two points of advice that we, that we just went through, you would have wished that you had done them sooner. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. Okay, great. Looking Thanks. Back. Thanks so much, Michael. And how can people re find postpilot.com? Obviously we'll have all that in the show notes. Um, anywhere you want to send our customers or our listeners, sorry. Yeah. I'll drop a link in the show notes where if someone wants to try it out for yourself, uh, the special offer for, for the listeners. And uh, you can reach me directly if you want to talk SaaS, you want to talk e-commerce, you want to talk postcards, michael at postpilot.com. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software Big Break could be right around the corner. <music>